much praise team beautiful beautiful song reminding us uh, that God is God and we are not and there are times where we just have to trust in that and rest in that fact and and be assured that uh, God is God and he is unstoppable he is unstoppable and that definitely shines in our text that we're looking at this morning I encourage you to open your Bible with me to Mark 14 Mark chapter 14 will be in verses 12 through 21 this morning. Um, Next week, uh, I will not be here. My family and I will be on vacation, and we'll be in Disney World. And we're looking forward to that, especially after Kylie's sickness uh, last month. The doctor said that there's no reason to see why she could not go to Disney World. We had made reservations and been planning on this and, and paying on this all year long, and So we are excited to be able to go to Disney World. And one of the things we're going to be doing there is we've got a dinner reservation at Chef Mickey's. And so we get to have dinner with Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse and and, uh, several other of the Disney characters there. And we're excited to be able to share dinner with such a a wonderful guest as as Mickey Mouse, uh, of all people. And there's also a great deal of, of relief knowing that you've got these reservations made ahead of time because we found out that it's a very difficult reservation to come across. And to know that we've got that in place, there, you, you get to go with a sense of confidence that everything is taken care of. Today in our text, we're going to see that Jesus sends two disciples to make preparations for the Passover meal. And the special guest there is not Mickey Mouse, but it's none other than the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And we see in the fact these reservations are made and the process through which they are being made, we see there a sense of confidence on the part of Jesus that everything is already in place, God's plan is unfolding, and Jesus is confident in God's plan, and he is content as he sees the will of his Father unfold. And so as we look to Christ in this text today, we understand that we should always trust in God's plan of redemption for his people through the work of Christ. That as God unfolds this plan of redemption in Christ Jesus, we should always trust in God to accomplish his will for his people through Christ. I want to invite you to stand if you're able this morning. We do this in reverence for the reading of the Holy Word of God. I'll be reading from Mark chapter 14 starting at verse 12. These words that were written by Mark under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. The disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he came with the twelve, and they were reclining at the table and eating. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. 
they began to be grieved and say to him, One by one, surely not I. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Let's pray together. Father, we come to this scripture today, Lord, with the conviction that this is your word, this is the word of God. It paints for us a picture of an historical reality of a true event that Jesus and the twelve disciples went through. And Father, as we look to this text, first of all, we, we learn from Christ, we model from Jesus how we are to be confident in your plan, and also that we should be content to let your plan unfold. But Father, more than that, we also look to Christ who endured these things for the sake of doing your will, Father, but also because he loves us. And we rejoice in that. And Lord, help us to trust at all times that you are God. You're in control. And all things work to the good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Lord, as we study the scripture today, I pray you would enlighten our minds and that you would illuminate our hearts. The Holy Spirit, apply these words to our lives today that we might be conformed to the image of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we have been going through this Gospel of Mark the last several months, we have come to the place where the last few days of Jesus Christ on this earth are beginning to unfold. And as the Passion Narrative, as this is called, as it moves quickly towards the cross, we see Jesus in His resolve not letting up one bit. In fact, as these events move quickly towards the cross, and Jesus, with this full knowledge of what is about to happen, we see Jesus in complete control. This is not an accident. This is not a, a tragedy. But this is the will of God unfolding for Christ. And in this, we see as Jesus embraces God's will for him, that includes the cross, the first thing we ought to do is we need to respond to Christ's confidence, to his confidence. He does not cower about his destiny. As pain and suffering awaits him, he demonstrates for us a, a complete and a total faith in his Father, a faith and a confidence that we ought to respond to. We see in verse 12, first of all, an inquiry of his disciples. They ask him a question. They say to him, On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? The word Passover in this text appears four times. And so Mark is emphasizing not only the, the date and the, the calendar of which these events unfold, but the theological meaning and the purpose. Remember, Passover was a celebration of God's deliverance of Israel from the land of Egypt. And as the Passover lamb was sacrificed, it was a reminder of God's provision so that his people might be spared, that his children 
would be saved. And as Mark emphasizes over and over again the Passover, we are reminded anew that Jesus is our Passover lamb. That as his blood was shed, we likewise receive the benefits of salvation and of redemption. His disciples, they asked this question, where do you want us to prepare this meal? Now, according to the Old Testament, the Passover meal had to be eaten within the walls of, of the city of Jerusalem. Jesus and his disciples had been leaving and staying in Bethany as, as we've studied over the last several weeks. But here, Jesus decides to remain within the walls of Jerusalem because that is what needs to take place to fulfill the requirements of the Passover. And notice the question and the way they word this. They say, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? They understood that Jesus was to be the one who was the head of this meal. According to the Jewish law and the tradition, the, the head of the household, the father, was to be the one presiding over the events of the Passover meal. It was up to the, the, the father, the one who presided, to make sure everyone knew what the meal symbolized and the importance of the celebration. And the disciples, they understood that Jesus was to be the presider he was the head. He was the leader of their family as they celebrated the Passover. And because the Passover had to be eaten within the walls of Jerusalem, there were a lot of pilgrims that came to Jerusalem during the time of Passover. There was a, a huge influx. There were hundreds of thousands of people, perhaps even up to a million or so, Jews within the city of Jerusalem. It was quite an event that as they were preparing for the Passover, there was a physical necessity that they were to get all of the items of the meal, the specific items in place. There was a physical preparation, but there was also to be a spiritual preparation. There was a great deal of energy and excitement in the city as all of God's people, as the Jews, came to celebrate and commemorate God's deliverance. And it was at that time that Jesus demonstrates his control of the situation, his confidence in the Father's plan. We see Jesus gives instructions to his disciples. As they ask this question, Jesus gives them some very explicit directions to obey. And in this, we see, first of all, he gives an unbelievable mission to two of these disciples. And he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, do these things. It reminds us earlier in, gospel, in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus sent the disciples out two by two as they went out on mission for him. So this was a mission for Christ. This was not just some ordinary assignment. This was a mission of the Lord. We read elsewhere in the Gospels it was Peter and John who were the ones that were sent on this specific mission. And very similar preparations that we read earlier in the triumphal entry. Remember back in chapter 11, as Jesus was preparing to enter into Jerusalem, he sent two disciples into the city to find this, this cult of, the, of a donkey and all the arrangements. And he says, if anybody stops you and asks you, you say to them, the master has need of this and they will allow you to take that. Now, very similar mission that he sends these two on. And there's questions that people ask about this. As Jesus gives these directions, is this 
specifically something supernatural that because he is God that he, he has this knowledge and he knows what's going to unfold or is this something that was prearranged by Christ did Jesus tell this man carrying the water pitcher I want you to meet these two disciples and take them back to this prearranged house now Mark does not tell us whether it was prearranged or it was specifically supernatural, but either way, it shows that Jesus is in control. Whether he prearranged it or whether he just somehow knew because he's God, either way, he's in control of this situation. As he is preparing to eat the Passover with the disciples, as he is the guest of the meal, Jesus is also the meal itself, as we're going to see as we look through this passage in the coming weeks Jesus the master gives an unbelievable mission to these two disciples and in that they have an unlikely meeting in verse 13 it says he sent them out it says go into the city now remember the city was a large city but there was also hundreds and thousands of pilgrims that were there in the city at that time he says I want you to find one specific man and the way you're going to know it's the right guy is you're going to find him carrying a pitcher of water. Now, in the midst of all of that crowd, somehow they're going to have a divine appointment with this fella. But not just an ordinary fella, a fella carrying a pitcher of water, which in that culture, that was not common. Typically, women or slaves carried pitchers of water. And since you're going to find this guy, and he's going to stand out to you because he's going to be doing something unusual. And in the midst of all this crowd, somehow, some way, by chance and by luck, you're going to run into this. No. No, it's prearranged by divine appointment, an unlikely meeting. And he says, I want you to follow this guy. In verse 14, we see an unlikely meeting turns into an unusual message. He says, wherever this guy goes, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room? Now, that sounds kind of bold, doesn't it? Come to, to somebody's house and say, the teacher says, where is my room? Now, think about that. Now, you don't own this house. Jesus doesn't own this house. He's not coming right out and saying, say, Jesus needs this. All you've got to say is the teacher. And that's sufficient. And the disciples are probably thinking, wow, first of all, we've got to somehow meet this fella carrying water in the midst of this crowd. Then we've got to go to some stranger's house and just say, the teacher says, where's my room? And this fella's actually going to let us come into his house? And not only that, he says, the teacher says where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples again Jesus the master of the situation he's in control undisputably he has the authority in this picture and then verse 15 shows that there's going to be a meal. In fact, this meal, according to God's plan, is an unstoppable meal. And he himself will show you a large room furnished and ready. 
Not only is there going to be some room in some stranger's house, the room is going to be furnished. It's going to be adequate enough, large enough, sufficient enough space for us to enjoy this meal. A large room furnished and ready. It has the sense that this meal had to happen. That this Passover celebration was inevitable. That this was, by Christ's design, a necessary appointment to reveal Himself and His purpose to His disciples. That there was something about this meal that was so necessary that His followers somehow would not get the full understanding without it. That this was, by God's sovereign design, an unstoppable meal. Said, you will find this upper room. Now, when we read the book of Acts, we see that after Jesus ascended to heaven, his disciples gathered in an upper room in Jerusalem, and it's speculated that it's the same upper room. The book of Acts says that that upper room, that, that home belonged to Mark's family, and it could be that the fellow carrying the pitcher of water in this story perhaps was even Mark himself, the very one who wrote and penned this book of the Bible. Again, speculation, but when you tie in the book of Acts with this, it's quite possible that Mark himself was the one who met those two disciples, taking them to this upper room for this meal that Jesus had determined to share with his disciples. And then we come to verse 16. And it says, The disciples went out and they came to the city and they found it just as he told them. We need to think about the impression on his disciples. Found it just as he told them. This, this weird this encounter, this, this chance, we're going to meet this fellow carrying the water, go to this home, say master wants his room and you're going to go there's going to be a room not only is a room it's a large room not only is it a large room it's a furnished room and there you are to prepare the Passover meal and as the disciples came and they said alright fine if you tell us to do it it's what we're going to do it don't make any sense it's kind of like earlier in their ministry when Jesus said you know, you know cast the net out and go back out and cast a net in the waters again. And Peter said, we've been fishing all night. Didn't catch anything. But if you say so, it's what we'll do. The disciples, this, this is bizarre, but we'll do it. And they went and they found it just as he told them. I imagine they walked away from that scenario and saying, you know, why in the world should we ever doubt this guy? He's always right. He is worthy. He's trustworthy. Everything he says that's going to happen, it happens. And as a follower of Christ, the more you find yourselves in situations where God tells you to do something, and the more you actually do it, the higher degree of faith you're going to have for the next situation you find yourself in. And God says, this is what I want you to do. Even situations that don't make any sense because you need you know sometimes directions don't make sense for example have you ever driven down Harrodsburg Road here recently 
near New Circle Road, they got that, that funky intersection where you're driving on this side of the road and then suddenly the signs direct you and next thing you know you steer over to the other side of the road and both lanes switch and it's like you're over in England or something. You're driving on the wrong side of the road for a little bit and then it directs you and you crisscross and you go back across and everything's normal again. And you wonder why in the world this makes no sense. But it's the directions, and you've got to follow the, the laws. You've got to follow the rules. And sometimes following God means you've got to do things that make no sense. No sense to you, but there's a purpose. I don't know what the purpose of switching the lanes is, but there's a purpose, I would hope. But God's always got a purpose for you. And some of the directions that make no sense to us are divine necessity. For example, the Great Commission. The disciples asked Jesus, where do you want us to go and make the Passover meal ready? And we asked the Lord, how would you like for us to expand your kingdom here on earth? The disciples received some very specific instructions that probably made no sense to them. And we are told, if you want to expand my kingdom here on earth, I want you to go and I want you to tell other people that one man died on a cross for their sins and that if you trust and believe in him and you submit to him and follow him, your sins will be forgiven and you'll have a right relationship with God. And believe it or not, you go and tell people that, there's going to be some folks that believe it. And they're going to be saved. And they're going to spend eternity in heaven because you followed the directions. You I mean, all I've got to do to expand your kingdom is just go and tell. And Jesus says, obey me. I'm with you in this. Obey me. And it'll work. His disciples learned that valuable lesson and we ought to do the same. We expand his kingdom through the Great Commission. We respond to Christ's confidence. He knows what he's doing. He's in charge. He works out the details. We just got to follow. We got to follow. Then we come to the next part of the story and we see that we ought to rest in Christ's contentment. His contentment. He is following the will of God and he is not deterred by a friend's betrayal. As he exhibited complete faith in his father, in the first scene, we see in this scene also Jesus trusting his Father as we ought to trust the Lord at all times. In verse 17 and 18, he gives a declaration of his betrayal. This is the final gathering of Jesus with his twelve before the crucifixion. It says, When it was evening, he came with the twelve as they were reclining at the table and eating. This gives the sense that the meal has been going on for some time now. In, in Jewish custom, at a, at a festive celebration, you didn't sit at the table in a chair like we think of. They actually laid on the floor on one side with their feet behind them and kind of reclined there at the table. And Jesus and his disciples were there and they were eating that meal. And Jesus speaks up and he says, Truly I say to you, and he's used that statement several times in Mark's gospel. Amen. 
means pay attention. This is true, what I'm about to say. I say to you with authority and with clarity, listen up carefully. Truly I say to you, and his disciples are probably thinking, wow, this is, this is going to be something good. This is going to be something meaty. He's going to tell us something about God or the kingdom of God. He's going to tell us something rich. They probably got excited about this. Or their ears perked up. Truly I say to you, and then he delivers this bombshell. One of you will betray me. And they're like, what? Wait a minute now. We're, we're here at this table and we're enjoying this wonderful celebration, this Passover meal. It's a, it's a holy commemoration of what God has done to bring about deliverance for his people. And here you are. You're the Messiah. You are the Christ. And we're enjoying one of those company. And you mean to tell us one of us is going to betray you? Jesus says, one who is eating with me. You see, the readers, us, we already know. Because Mark already told us, hey, it's Judas. We read that in verses 10 and 11. The disciples had no idea. They weren't privy to this information at that time. But Jesus knew. How did he know? Again, did somebody inform him? Did somebody snitch on Judas? divine knowledge supernatural we don't know for certain but we do know that Psalm 41 9 predicts the king will have a close friend betray him and it could be that Jesus saw this as a fulfillment of scripture about himself but he gives a declaration of his betrayal followed by a description of his betrayer it says in verse 19 that they began to be grieved, obviously, worried and troubled and bothered, and saddened and brokenhearted. You mean one of us will somehow betray you? And he said to them in this description, it is one of the twelve, lest you be mistaken and think it's one of my other followers that are further out in the concentric circles. Many scholars speculate that it wasn't just Jesus and the twelve in the room at this time, that perhaps there were other followers. In a traditional Passover sense, there typically was the family involving women and children as well. and Speculated that perhaps there were others in the room at the time, and Jesus specifies for them, let me, let me make this as clear as I can. It's one of you all, one of the twelve, one of you here at this table right now. He says, one of you who dips in the bowl. One of you who is so close to me, you literally can dip your food into the same bowl as I'm dipping in. You can't get any closer than that. And with that knowledge, the disciples ask him one by one, surely not I, not me. And it's interesting because they're not speculating, okay, I wonder if it's so-and-so over there. You know, I've always thought he was a little sketchy. They immediately turn their focus inward because perhaps each and every one of them understand because of their fallen nature, I'm prone to do something like that if I find myself in, in, a, in a wrong situation 
in a wrong state of mind. And perhaps each and every one of them understood, as, as you and I should, that any act of disobedience against Christ, any, any sin that you commit is a betrayal against the king. The king has is, is issued his edict that we are to obey him. And any time we disobey, any time we sin, and that is what we are saying is the sin is more important to me than Christ. Jesus, I love sin more than you. That's what we do when we, when we sin. And for them to say, sure, is, is, is it me? Is it me? It's as if they're saying, there's a chance it could be me. Paul says that we need to take heed lest we fall. It means each and every one of us as Christians, because of our sin nature, we are prone to betray Christ. Even those of us who are so close to Him, close enough to dip in His own bowl, there is within all of us the ability to betray Him so heinously as well. The description of the betrayer we tend to say, well, shame on Judas. Shame on you. Shame on me. Shame on all of us for betraying the Lord through our sins. See, refusing to acknowledge your betrayal, refusing to repent of your sin, will only compound the issue. That's what we see in this final point, the destruction of his betrayer. We read that a terrible fate awaits those who don't repent of their sins. Verse 21, he says, For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. And in that we read about divine sovereignty. Sovereignty. Jesus is faithful to his Father's divine purpose. Jesus says, this is the will of God. This is what is going to happen. The Father is in control. The Scripture says, it is written, I will go, the Son of Man will go, just as it is written. That everything that's about to transpire, my suffering, my death, my burial, my resurrection, will go according to the Father's plan. Divine sovereignty. God is in complete control of everything. Everything? Everything. What about Judas betraying? Is God in control of that? But notice what Jesus says here next. He says, But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Jesus teaches human responsibility. Got divine sovereignty. God's in control of everything. But that does not exonerate the sinner who chooses willfully to rebel against God. Judas is still accountable for his actions, so much so that he says, Woe to that man! He says, Cursed is that man! He pronounces a curse! Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. An old proverb says, Temptation comes to all people, but woe to the one by whom temptation comes. 
Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would, have been, it would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Things are going to go so bad for Judas, he's going to wish he was never born. It would be better for Judas had he never existed. His final existence is going to be that terrible. And of course, we know from that, from the description of the Word of God, there is a place called hell for those who do refuse to repent of their sins. An eternal destination of pain and sorrow and suffering, consciousness, eternal guilt and torments with no relief or no hope. Woe to the one who betrays the Son of Man the reality of it, all the disciples are about to betray him, aren't they? They betray him by being tired. They betray him by being scared. Peter's going to betray him because of his cowardice. All 11 of the other disciples are about to betray him. So what's the difference between the disciples, the 11, and, and Judas? And the answer is repentance. Repentance. Judas feels remorse over what he has done, but instead of crying out to God for forgiveness, he takes matters in his own hands. As we read in the story, the gospel unfolds. But we see here that revelation brings responsibility because Judas knew who Jesus was, and he still willfully betrayed him. He is accountable for his sins. God has revealed to you this morning, if not sooner, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, God's chosen Messiah. And God has revealed to you that you are a sinner, that you need to repent of your sin, you need to trust in Christ, throw yourself upon the mercy of God and find forgiveness. God has revealed that to you, and if you still choose to willfully leave this room today without turning from your sin and trusting in Christ you will suffer the same fate as Judas. Woe to you, whom God has revealed the good news, and you choose to continually betray the king through your rebellion. Now how does sovereignty and responsibility work together? It's the mystery, that's a tension in Scripture. We don't know, but Scripture teaches both. But all we know is we are accountable for our sins. And if you refuse to repent, you will bear the weight of your sins. But if you choose to trust in Christ, you can always trust and rest assured that God's will for you, God's plan of redemption for you, will unfold through Christ. Have you ever been in over your head, so to speak? You think about different scenarios and situations you find yourself in in life. I remember one time Logan, when he was little, literally found himself in over his head. We were in a swimming pool, and he was walking around in the shallow end and, and walked a little too far, and, and where it started to slide down to the deep end, he, his feet slipped out, and he was in over his head. And, and a split second, we noticed what was going on. We just seen his hands up in the air like that and able to go in and rescue him. Sometimes we find ourselves in situations where we're in over our heads and we have lost control a little too much 
for us to handle. There are some that argue that's what happened with Jesus. There are some that say he saw himself to be the Savior of the world. He saw himself to be the Messiah. But yet he, he offended one too many people one too many times. Angered the wrong people, the people in authority, and eventually he lost his life because he pushed the envelope too far and he found himself in over his head. But when you read this text today of Jesus commanding his disciples, go into the city, find this man, tell the owner of the house, you're going to find a room there, and sure enough, it was as he said. And when you see Jesus reclining at the table and, and calmly as can be telling his disciples, guys, one of you all is about to betray me. And what's going to happen to me is according to the will of the Father. I'm content in that. I imagine, and I'm pretty certain Jesus' heart was broken over the fact that one of the twelve was going to betray him. But Jesus said, I'm going to do the Father's will. It doesn't matter. I'm not deterred by the fact that someone is turning against me. Jesus is in control. He's resolved to do the will of the Father no matter what. And because of his resolved because of his resolve, you and I can be saved. If Jesus would have doubted the Father, if he had lacked confidence in, the, in his Father, if Jesus had, had lacked contentment and, and panicked that someone was about to betray him, you and I would still be lost in our sins if he did not complete the will of God, the Father. But because of his resolve, because of his confidence and his trust in the Lord, the Father, we can be saved. But not only is our salvation at stake through Jesus' confidence, but it's also a valuable lesson for us in, in trusting the will of the Lord. When your future is uncertain and your friends are untrue, your Father is unshakable. It's amazing that the song the praise team sang this morning emphasized that. And that wasn't planned, by the way. When your future is uncertain and your friends are untrue, as we see in this text today, your Father is unshakable. Jesus knew that. He trusted in that. Do you? Remember Mark's audience? He was writing to Christians in Rome who were being persecuted for their faith. They were being tempted to, to abandon Christ. They were tempted to forsake Christ because the going was so tough. Mark writes to them with a pastoral reminder, hey, you think you got it tough? Look at Jesus. He knew what was about to happen. He knew one of his friends was about to turn on him. He still marched forward. Total confidence of the Father's plan and will for him when you suffer when you are tempted to doubt when you are tempted to abandon Christ look to Jesus the author and the finisher of your faith trust in God learn from Christ let's pray together Lord again we come to you in humble adoration acknowledging that you are God 
acknowledging that whatever situation we find ourselves in, no matter when the future is uncertain, you are in control and you are God alone. So Lord, this morning we express our complete trust in your plan to save us through Christ. We have confidence in you as Jesus had confidence in you. We we are content no matter what happens, even if our closest companion in this life lets us down. We will not be moved. We will do your will and we will trust you. Heavenly Father, we ask for you to move in this time of decision as the Holy Spirit speaking to our hearts. I pray that we would hear and that we would obey whatever you call us to do. We, we submit. We do this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like for you to stand this time as the praise team comes and leads us in this time of decision. You are God alone. That is our prayer to the Lord this morning. And if God is God, if He is calling you to salvation, if He is calling you to rededication, to, to be baptized, to join the fellowship of this church in, a, in an official capacity, maybe God's calling you to do something that makes no